an awesome Sunday. Really excited. We do need help in children's ministry. And I'll say this. I know it's hard, all right? I made a bet with my wife last night. Not a bet. I promise. I said, hey, if you'll go to Dairy Queen and get me a blizzard, I will wake up at 530 with our son. And so this morning I've been hanging out with my son. I know it's hard, but we need help in children's ministry. And so I would encourage you to be a part of that. It's exciting, though, to be at Journey Church. We've got a lot of things going on. If this is your first time here, uh, our pastor is on sabbatical. And so He's not going to be here for like five weeks, so I encourage you to come back in October. But I do want to say this about Randy. <laughs> just come back. All right, if you don't like the sermon, just come back. There'll be different people uh, preaching each week. But I do want to say this about Randy. He does so much for our church. I think we all know that. He's a man of integrity, character, and faith. And so I would just encourage you, let's do the best we can the next month to try not to need him. All right? To try not to need him. But he's going to have a great sabbatical. I'm excited to preach this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Uh, I was thinking about this concept this morning, that sometimes things in life are not as advertised. Uh, if I were to ask you what your favorite hotel would be, I don't know what your answer would be, but I can guarantee it would not be the Clarion Inn in Fairmont, West Virginia. All right, I promise you that. Uh, my wife and I were going on a trip maybe 18 months ago or so, and so we decided to go to Pittsburgh. I don't know why we wanted to go to Pittsburgh, but we thought, man, we'll go to Pittsburgh. And so we stopped outside of Pittsburgh for our first stop at the Clarion Inn in Fairmont, West Virginia. And so it was advertised online as, man, this is going to be a great hotel. We get there, and there are no cars in the parking lot. And I'm curious, is this hotel even open? We get inside, we don't see anybody. There's no one in the hotel. Finally, after about five minutes, somebody comes forward and they give us our room key. And so we get to our room, we're excited. All right. My wife just graduated with you know, college and stuff like that. We're excited. We get to the room, and it's not good. Now, there was a red flag that I should have known. When I went to check out for the hotel, it was $60. $60 is not a lot of money for a hotel. I know it's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money for a hotel. And so thankfully, this hotel has a pool. I'm excited about it. You know, Look out my window at the pool. It's green. It's shallow, and it is green. I don't think anyone has used that pool in several years. And so I'm thinking, well, at least they got a fitness center, you know. I go down to the fitness center. You can't call something a fitness center that is a closet with a treadmill. Are you all with me? That is not a fitness center. It's not a fitness center. I did not stick around for the continental breakfast. But I think, well, surely our Airbnb will be better. We got an Airbnb for the next few days. We get to Pittsburgh. We get to our Airbnb. It's not any better. I immediately get to the Airbnb, and the first thing I notice, I'm not trying to be judgmental, but I see a pit bull, and I am scared of dogs. I'm scared of golden retrievers. So pit bull is like, you know, I see a pit bull, my wife and I wait in the car for like 20 minutes. We finally get to our Airbnb, we get inside, and I notice it has not been cleaned. The bed has not been made. And I'm thinking, man, this was a disaster. Not to mention, that this Airbnb is on like the back side of this building, and I'm sitting there for three nights thinking, if someone breaks in, they can murder me and no one will know. <laughs> Did I mention my wife is pregnant at this point? And so all this is taking place and I leave frustrated from my trip because things were not as advertised. When I became a Christian, I started reading the New Testament uh, kind of in middle school. And one of the things that I noticed about the New Testament was how sold out the church was for Christ. Man, these people were on fire for Christ. I saw them live in radical obedience to Christ. 
I saw them take care of their neighbors. I saw them in devotion to Christ, that man, nothing else mattered in comparison to Christ. And then I looked around me and I saw the churches around me. I saw my friends who were Christians around me. And I thought, man, my, my Christian friends don't live like this. My church isn't like this. God, what, what is it? Is it something that's wrong with me where I'm seeing the world and I'm seeing no one that's, no one that's fully following you? God, what is it in me that I need to fix? And I remember reading this book called Not a Fan uh, by Kyle Eidelman, and it reiterated the very thing that I was telling uh, myself, and I felt like God was telling me. And in the book of Acts, what you're going to see in Acts chapter 2 is you're going to see a church that is sold out for the gospel. They are fully devoted for Christ. And it's not that nothing else matters. It's just that Christ matters more than everything else. And so let's read Acts chapter 2 this morning. Uh, if you're taking any sort of notes, it's a very simple sermon this morning. The early church was devoted. They were sold out for Christ. It says this in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You see a devotion that is so evident in the New Testament church, and they're devoted to four things is what it says in the text. The first thing that they're devoted to is it says the apostles' teaching. As I was studying this week, one of the things that stood out to me is it does not say they were devoted to the apostles. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. In Acts chapter 4 verse 13, it's going to say that these men were unschooled ordinary men. It's going to go on to tell us that they could tell that these men had been with Jesus. There was nothing charismatic about them. There was nothing intelligent about them. I would even argue that they weren't the most gifted people, but the thing that they had is the same thing that we have this morning. They have the Word of God, and they have the Spirit of God. And when you have the Word of God and the Spirit of God, you create an unstoppable church. And that's what we see in the New Testament. But I think part of our issue and part of my conviction this morning is that everybody here says, hey, I want to hear a word from God. I want to hear a rhema from God. I want God to specifically talk to me through the reading of the Scripture. I want to, I want to be attentive. I want to, I want to be there and be a part of it. But the problem that exists in my life at times, and might exist in yours as well, is that sometimes the first time that we worship is when Dan gets up here with his guitar and we hear the first song at 9.15 and we haven't prepared and readied our hearts to hear from God. Are y'all with me? Sometimes the first time that we worship is when we get in the walls of this building. How is God going to speak to you if you're not preparing your heart to receive what he'd have for you? And so they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Some translations say this, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, which tells me this, they were devoted to the gospel. If you go on to Acts chapter 5, it says they continually preached Christ. Over and over and over again, they preached Christ. They preached the gospel. Why? Because there's a temptation in Genesis chapter 2, in Matthew chapter 4, and also here this morning, that sometimes we can think to ourselves, did God really say? Did God really say that you know, marriage is between a man and a woman? Did God really say that purity is a big deal? Did God really say that, 
homosexuality is sinful? Did God really say that your mouth speaks what your heart is full of? Did God really say that being together with believers is important? Did God really say, and over and over and over again, what we can do is we can be tempted to believe the lies of the enemy. But what we have to do in order to combat the lies that Satan wants to feed us is we have to remind ourselves the truth of the gospel. You see, the gospel is very simple. It starts with God's design. God designed and created the world. In Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had created. He saw all that he had made, and he said that it was good. And if we don't start there, we're never going to understand the gospel because man was walking with God in the garden. They were in right relationship with God. But when you get to Genesis chapter 2, you know what happens. Sin enters the world. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us in Luke 18, 19, that no one is righteous, no, not one. Over and over again, the Bible tells us that we are sinful people. And what sin is, it's choosing to worship the creation of this world rather than the creator of this world. And ultimately what it does is it separates us from God. And it leads us to a place of brokenness. Brokenness is this idea that we are all like shattered glass where we're broken because of our sin, but what we try to do is we try to fix our lives. We try to put it back together. And the way that we do that is we try to clean ourselves up. But thanks be to God, as it says in the New Testament, that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, that God sees us in our brokenness, but he doesn't leave us where we are. That is the gospel. That is the truth of the gospel that over and over and over again, we have to remind ourselves, this is who our God is. This is who we serve. And I want to be transparent with you this morning. There's a temptation to get on a stage and a platform like this and want to wow people or want to say something that you've never heard before. Father, forgive me for the times where I've got up on a platform and not just preached Christ. I want to be an Acts 5 type of guy that I continuously preach Christ over and over and over again because the enemy is going to lie to me, but he's also going to lie to you. And so how do we combat the lies of the enemy? We preach Christ. Preach Christ. The second thing it tells us is it says they are devoted to fellowship. Fellowship comes from this word koinonia. Y'all have heard that before. It's uh, talked about 20 times in the New Testament as a noun. It's used in verse 44 as well to describe the word common. Uh, Some different words that's used for participation, sharing, participation. Uh, Again, it's over over and over again, use the word participation, partnership, I think a good definition for the word fellowship is that we're sharing together with one another for the purpose of spurring one another on towards Christ. The Bible tells us, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That's the idea of fellowship, that the people in this room, we should be spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. You see, I think think the big thing about fellowship is it wasn't programming. It wasn't necessarily small groups It wasn't necessarily serving. It was just a way of life. It was how they lived their lives. I think you might be sitting there this morning thinking, well, why do I need fellowship? And if you're not, I'm going to answer it anyway. Why do we need fellowship? Well, I think there's two reasons why we need it. There's one reason why the early church needed it. The reason the early church needed it is because they were living in pressures of a godless society. Sound familiar? I think sometimes we look at the world around us, it's always been bad. Ever since Genesis chapter 2, it's always been bad. It's never been good. 
God is going to restore the earth at some point, and that's the promise that we got to cling to. It's always going to be bad. There's always going to be pressures in society. Think about Acts chapter 2. They make fun of Peter because he's speaking so boldly and courageous, and they think that he's drunk with wine. Acts chapter 4, the believers are standing in front of the Sanhedrin, preaching the gospel, and they're basically afraid because they might get thrown into prison. Acts chapter 5, they get thrown into prison. Acts chapter 8, it says the church is scattered. Over and over again, you see the pressures of a godless society that the apostles and the church are facing. It's the same thing that we're facing today. And so what we have to have in our life is we have to have people that are going to be behind us, pushing us towards Christ, saying, hey, don't give up. Don't give up. I see the pressure that you're experiencing. Don't give up. If you don't win your world to Christ, who will? Don't give up. Don't give up. And so we're all dealing with pressure. They dealt with pressure. We deal with pressure. But I'd argue the second reason is because we're dealing with pressures of social media. One of the pressures that I think we face with technology, everybody knows somebody like this. They post all the time on social media, but they're the most introverted person you've ever met. Like, there's so many people that are like that. And what social media does is it gives us the opportunity to feel connected when we're actually not. And so it gives us a false sense of connection. I think sometimes we can come in a room like this and we can think that we're connected to the people around us because we're sitting next to them, when in reality, we don't even know that much about them. I was dealing with this a couple uh, days ago. I had a phone call with a guy that's been just kind of mentoring me for like 10 years or so. And uh, we're on the phone and we have this mutual friend. Now, I met this guy like eight years ago, this mutual friend. And we're just Facebook friends. So we're not friends. But I see everything he's posted on Facebook for the last eight years. And I caught myself saying this to this guy that's been mentoring me. I said, I feel like I know this guy, but yet I've never even really talked to him. Social media gives us a false sense of connection to make us think that we're connected to people when we're actually not. And I would argue, how am I connected to people? I would argue by saying this, how, do you, how well do you know the people around you? Do you know the sin that they're dealing with? Do you know the temptation that they're fighting with on a weekly basis? Do you know what they're praying for? Do you know what's going on in their heart? You see, sometimes we, we think we're connected when we're actually not. The third thing tells us in verse 42 is the breaking of bread. I'm embarrassed to say this. I taught this wrong one time to youth. Uh, I taught it to say that they broke bread in their homes, which it goes on to say that. But it's really talking about communion. And I would go a step further to say it's talking about remembering and reminding ourselves of what took place on the cross. And the early church constantly reminded themselves of what took place on the cross. They lived in light of recognizing and believing that the cross was a real, true event. And you see it really throughout the rest of the text. You see it in verse 43. It says, the apostles performed many signs and many wonders. You see it in their miracles that they do. Which is kind of interesting because didn't Jesus tell them in John 14, hey, you are going to do even greater things than these? And so they're living in light of the cross and they're doing miracles and the Spirit is working through them. You see it in verse 45 and 46, that they're unified. It says the believers had everything in common. There was no needy person among them. They're unified. How can we be divided when we have something so great as such as the event of the cross and Jesus's sacrifice for us? And so they're united. And the third thing, it's in verse 47. It says the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. They get to see salvations take place because they're living in light of the cross. 
If you truly believe in the cross, you will tell other people about Jesus Christ. And we see that in the church. But I think sometimes our perspective is off. Uh, something I've been doing the past year or so, I brought these. They're not real, all right? These are blue light glasses. And I've been doing this for about a year or so. Uh, I knew my wife and I were having a baby. So I was like, man, I'm going to do everything I can for good sleep, you know? And so I wear these like an hour before bed. I don't know if they work or if I'm just tired, but I fall asleep immediately, immediately. And so I've been wearing these glasses. Now, the thing about the glasses is they don't necessarily change my iPad. Like I got an iPad up here. It's got a screen on. They don't change that. They don't change my phone. They don't change my TV. But what they do change is how I see them. When we look at things through the lens of the cross, it doesn't necessarily change the things around us, but it should change how we see them. Are y'all with me? It should change the problems that we see on this earth because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Following Jesus does not mean that our problems go away, but it should mean that we see our problems differently and we see them in light of the cross. Are y'all with me? We see things through the lens that Jesus died on the cross, and it's not that nothing else matters, but it's, it's Jesus matters. Living for Jesus matters. Are y'all with me? And so we have to see things through the lens of the cross. Here's the last thing it tells us. It says they devoted themselves to prayer. Been thinking about this question this week. What is something that you're asking God for today that if he doesn't show up, doesn't happen? I want you to think about that. What are you asking God for today that if he doesn't show up, doesn't happen? Because the early church was devoted to prayer. They knew several things about prayer. One, they knew that prayer provided power. You see it throughout the book of Acts. You see it in Acts chapter 1. It says they're praying. By the time you get to Acts chapter 2, it says they've received the Holy Spirit. You see it in Acts chapter 4. It sees uh, the church is praying. It says that Peter and John stand up and speak with boldness and courage, and the Spirit is obviously working in them. You see it in Acts chapter 8, verse 15. It says Peter and John are praying for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit, which is a pretty countercultural idea. In Acts chapter 8, verse 17, the Samaritans receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer has power, and the early church understood that, and that's why they were so devoted to it. But I'd also say this, prayer provides refuge. The Bible tells us that God is our refuge and our strength, our help in ever-present time of trouble, Psalm 46.1. You see in Acts chapter 12 that Peter is in prison. The church is praying for him, and what does it tell us? It says an angel appears to him and leads him out of the prison, and he goes untouched. Prayer provides refuge, but you also see, thirdly, that prayer provides salvation. You see it really throughout the book of Acts, but there's one thing that was really uh, sticking out to me this week. That in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned to death. He has rocks that are thrown at him, and what does he do? He prays for the forgiveness of the people that are persecuting him. And so essentially, he's praying for the people that are lost around him. Now, most scholars believe that there was one particular person that was there, and it was this guy named Saul, who in Acts chapter 9 has a radical encounter with Jesus which I believe is because of the prayers of Stephen. And then he goes and makes a huge difference for the church in the name of Paul, and even greater than that, in the name of Jesus Christ. Prayer provides opportunities for salvation. See, how did they know how to do all this stuff? You know, how did they know 
the early church, how did they know they should be devoted to the apostles' teaching? And I was thinking about that, and it kind of reminded me of something Jesus did in Luke chapter 4, where it says, as was his custom, or as was his habit, he went to the synagogue and began to read the word of God. You got to think that maybe they saw Jesus doing it, and they thought, man, maybe we should do this too. Or how did they, how did they know to be so devoted to fellowship? Well, you got to think these disciples and these apostles who were with Jesus, spending time with Jesus doing fishing trips and camping and going to different places and having this man that you're following build a ministry on relationships of love and integrity, you got to think that maybe they remember that and think, man, we should do that too. Or this idea of communion, the breaking of bread, where do they get that? You got to think that maybe they remember the Last Supper and how Jesus explains the elements of communion and what he's about to do on the cross. Or what about prayer? How do they know how to do that? Well, you got to think that maybe they remember all the times where Jesus had a crowd in front of him, but instead of preaching to the crowd, he would go by himself to pray. You see, over and over and over again, we see Jesus model the very same thing that the early church is going to do. And they were devoted to it. They were sold out to it. But I would argue that there's one thing the early church did that maybe we're missing out on. And it's this. They led by conviction. They allowed the Holy Spirit to convict them, but they didn't just sit there with that conviction. They actually did something about it. I want to close by reading this verse in Acts chapter 2. I think it might be on the screen. It says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? It says they were cut to the heart, y'all. And their response to being cut by the heart is not, Well, that stinks. I should probably do something different. Their response is, Hey, I need to do something now. Here's what it says. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and, the gift, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. I think there's a difference between living with conviction and living by conviction because a lot of people live with conviction, but very few live, live by conviction and actually doing something different about it. Because we've told you what the gospel is this morning. I think there's two groups of people. You recognize, hey, God designed and created the world. It was good. Sin entered the world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Leads us to a place of brokenness where we attempt to fix our brokenness by pursuing things in life that really don't matter. Then you get to gospel, which just simply means this, that God loves you enough to not leave you in your brokenness, but he actually has a solution for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And some of you have heard that this morning, but you're living with conviction meaning you're not doing anything about it. What did Peter tell us to do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And so there's one group of people in here this morning that you need to come forward to be baptized when we have a response in a moment. But I think there's another group of people. There's a group of people that would stop there. They would say, hey, I've been baptized. I'm just waiting out, to, waiting until I get to heaven. But there's a last stage in this process. And it's called this, recover and pursue. Pursue what? God and his design. That when we come to faith in Christ, we, we recover and pursue the design that God has for us because every person in this room has a plan that has been spoken by God that God has for your life. The question is, will you pursue it? Will you pursue it? Because everybody in this room is advertising something with the way that we live our lives. I don't know about you, but I want to be sold out for Jesus because there's too much at stake for me, for my family, for the people that I'm around if I just sit here in my conviction. 
I want to live by conviction, not just with conviction. Are y'all with me? We're going to have a time of response this morning. I believe that God is calling some of you to be baptized today. In a room this size, I guarantee that there's people that God is calling to be baptized. And I would just encourage you, what God wants for you is to come be baptized, but what the enemy wants for you is to sit there in your chair and do nothing. I believe that there is some that you need to come pray for your family. I believe there's some that you need to come pray for your lost friends at work. God wants to use you to win your world to Christ. Don't just live with conviction, live by conviction. Let's pray. God, there's a temptation in this world not to be sold out for you because there's so many things that the world seems to have to offer. And God, help us in these moments not to to worship the creation of this world, but to worship the creator of this world. And that's you, God. And as we have a time of response, God, I pray that you would push people out of their seats to come be baptized. I pray that you'd push people out of their seats to come to the altar and pray for their family, to pray for their friends, to pray for the people around them. And God, I pray that we would see the world through the lens of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.